0: Welcome to Finsight Global Financial Institutions Industry Podcast. My name is Kay Shi and I'm an associate at Baker McKenzie's EMI Group in London. Today, as part of our ongoing sovereigns series, Worlds in Motion, we are going to talk about sovereigns in the context of environmental and broader sustainability considerations. Following the recently concluded COP26 in Glasgow, we will examine some of the key takeaways, specifically what sovereigns need to consider as we look ahead. Joining me today is Andrew Hedges, a partner in our corporate EMI practice in London. Andrew has a lot of experience advising clients who engage with energy transition and decarbonization, particularly renewable energy and climate markets. He joined our firm early this month and both of us had the privilege of attending the recent COP26 conference in Glasgow. Nice to talk to you again, Andrew. Thanks, Kay. So many of our listeners would be aware of existing initiatives in the SWF sector, such as One Planet Sovereign Wealth Funds Initiative that started in late 2017, with members now representing some 36 trillion dollars in assets under management or ownership. Having been on the ground at COP26, what are your takeaways on what this COP means for SW, SWFs and their existing initiatives?
1: Thanks, Kay, and welcome to all those who have tuned into the podcast. Um it was pretty exciting for both Kay and myself and others of the Baker McKenzie team to be to be there at COP26 right through until the um Hectic but overly overall successful end to the, to the COP. Um, yeah, thinking about the the takeaways from for, for the sovereign wealth fund sector, I think the the main one that both Kay and I and others noted at, at COP was the the change in, or well, the increasing change in perspective uh, away from just nation states, and increasingly the focus on financial sector, key elements of the financial sector, key elements of the business community, particularly the hard-to-abate industrial sectors, and all of that sort of coming in under that uh, umbrella of net zero commitments. And in the run-up to the COP26, and during it, we saw a raft of uh, continuingly ambitious increases in commitments made by sectors and, and companies. And in the final financial sector, such as, there was GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero, which um, brought together a, a lot of a lot of initiatives around that, including the sovereign wealth fund sector, and, and represented some 130 odd trillion in in uh, assets under control or management. So 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 exciting numbers and in an increasing increasing ambition. But but I, I think one of the things we are Uh, identifying, particularly from being on the ground at COP, but, but more generally, is that we're starting to evolve from the commencement of the Paris Agreement and the push to get countries, companies and sectors to make their commitments and the evolution of that into something that looks to how those companies, sectors and countries will deliver on those commitments. So we're starting to see uh, an increasing standardization around what is a good net zero plan. So for example, the science-based targets initiative um, during COP released their proposed standard for the financial institution sector on what is a quality net zero pathway and, and, and plan for a financial institution. Um, and there's a raft of other uh, announcements and initiatives. The UN uh, has made announcements, the UK has made announcements, et cetera. So when I and others think about the sovereign wealth fund sector and the existing initiatives, uh, such as the framework around the One Planet Sovereign Wealth Fund initiative, I think it's already going definitely in the right place, particularly around governance, particularly around uh, assessment of climate risks and opportunities aligned with TCFD in in those assets under management or ownership. But I think what we'll see is, is, is a rapidly enhancing expectation for those uh, member funds or all their companies within the, the sovereign wealth funds portfolios to enhance their transition plans and to accelerate their actual sort of real economy engagement to, to, to transition towards a low carbon world.
0: You know, it's interesting that you say that these sovereign wealth funds um, have really rapidly enhanced expectations to um be big players in terms of net zero targets, and they can certainly be leaders in this space. Now, Andrew, you've spoken of the near the need to accelerate the transition to a low carbon world. Are there any other developments you're seeing in terms of where sovereign wealth funds can play an increasing role in the coming years?
1: I think so, Kay. Um, I- it is, It is. you could say it's somewhat niche, but it's niche but critical to, to the path we have to to tread through particularly to 2030. And it's really around um, breakthrough technologies and um, I guess uh, accelerated transition pathways for, for key uh, emitting sectors. And what I can see starting to coalesce is a number of initiatives all sort of coming towards a, a, sim, a similar or, or grouping of potential at scale projects which will demonstrate the commercialization of critical um, uh, zero carbon or low carbon breakthrough technologies in, in sectors such as steel or aviation or, or cement and others such as that. And when I look at how those partnerships are potentially coalescing, I think what we see is, although the sovereign wealth funds are often uh, passive investors, um, they do have the potential to influence um, through their engagement with their portfolio companies or their, or their investment strategies and the risk profiles they're prepared to, to take. And I think there is an opportunity there. Um, for sovereign wealth funds to become more active and to identify these uh, emerging partnerships, particularly when when there's a potential sort of green economy uh, win uh, for their for their for their country, uh, to see where they can involve themselves in that investment path, with a view to accelerating those those breakthrough technologies, but also Ultimately, in enhancing or investing or taking positions in in companies that may be the the real economic drivers of, of a green future. Now, that's all sort of easy to say at a very high level, but to give you a, a I guess a discrete example of what what this is, I, I think with the one that that caught my eye, uh, that was announced at COP twenty six, although it's been some time in the making, uh, is an initiative from Senator Kerry and the World Economic Forum and others called the First Movers Coalition, which brought together uh, a number of significant industrial entities uh, and other key entities, all focused on, as we said, sectors such as, you know, zero carbon steel or others, where they recognize that if you get the right long-term purchase commitments from creditworthy, established global companies, that can act as the the breakthrough commercial commitment that can underpin a business model and ultimately deployment of that technology. Now, alongside that, when you look at sort of G fans and the announcements, and also the sort of the the expectations, if you look at something like the SBTI draft proposal on financial institution, net zero plans, a lot of that is focusing not just on the easy option of say divest from coal, but the, the, the critical but tough challenge of how do financial institutions engage with the real economy engage with industrial sectors engage with uh emitting sectors to work with them to shift to a transition path and i think this type of area neatly fits where where you you will have an increasing number of financial institutions not just sovereign wealth funds but the you know the debt markets etc that as they implement their net zero plans are uh, Uh, massively motivated to find ways in which they can provide uh, appropriately sized and and risk-weighted capital to initiatives around breakthrough technologies, because it's ultimately, not only is it potentially going to make sense for the investment itself, it's, it's becoming increasingly critical for those financial institutions to find ways in which they can demonstrate they are actually tangibly part of the solutions rather than passively sitting back. So I think it could be challenging for many sovereign wealth funds of working out exactly how to engage with these sorts of initiatives because they are so, I guess, um, on the ground, and that's slightly different to the sort of Olympian view of many sovereign wealth funds. But I think it's something worth engaging with uh, because the, the ultimate rewards for both them and their and their host countries could be immense.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think the point you make about breakthrough technologies is was something we heard lots about at COP. We have these technologies that we know work, but it's about scaling them up and making them commercially viable. And sovereign wealth funds can play a big part in terms of doing that. And not only emerging technologies, but really making sure the funds are flowing a lot of times in, to emerging economies where there is a lot of space for carbon reductions to happen. So all really great points, I guess, to finish it off, maybe let's take a step back and look at what needs to happen in the future. Um, If we look ahead, so let's say five to 10 years from now, what do you think sovereigns need to prepare for specifically around sustainability?
1: I think that I think that in, for many of them, if they look at the, the international markets they operate in or, or their own host countries, that that they will need to expect uh increasing formal regulation around um aligning their 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 operations and their governance with a one point five degree target, i.e. a Paris Aligned target. Um uh I think that they will need to I think I think almost any particularly when when we work with financial institutions, I, I think one of the most interesting areas that will develop as well, tangible sense, is around data uh, and, and how sovereign wealth funds will access the data they need to in order to have a, a, an enhanced view of their portfolios in order to comply with these emerging regulatory requirements, or in order to help their their portfolio companies actually work out how they, in turn, will engage. And we're seeing that across multiple spaces. Financial institutions trying to look at their sort of um, uh, books of of debt to identify in a more granular fashion exactly how they're exposed and and how they can report that back up. But also through commodity chains, we're seeing increasing uh, developments around Data flows um, in order that there can be an enhanced view of the footprint of everything, really. Um, and then ultimately, I, I think you know the the Op uh, SWF framework in their in their meeting before COP had identified sort of trying to find ways to enhance um, private sector support for green hydrogen as one of their initiatives. And I think that's that's moved from a sector which we all expected to be more some way off to, to moving far quicker than, than than most expected. And I think if we're talking a five year horizon, there's going to be some very significant projects and companies emerging in that space, which really take things from the pilot to 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 really creating supply chains.
0: Thank you. I'm just thinking about five years from now, we'll be at COP 31, hopefully with uh, a lot of positive news to report, um, maybe to finish it off. Andrew, most memorable moment from COP26.
1: Oh, I probably <laughs> uh, this st- the stakeholder uh, stakeholder uh, stock taking session on the Friday um, uh, with Senator Kerry and others speaking was was probably Uh, And and actually, no, during that session when the European Union spokesperson really tied back the necessity to have a breakthrough around the green text on his tangible association with the necessity of this for his own children's uh, life and career moving forward. I think that was quite a... uh, important personal note that was given to, to, to frankly, a bunch of negotiators who have been sort of dancing around in circles for some years together.
0: I agree. I had forgot about that moment. I think he had took his, as uh, a grandson's age, which was one right now. And he was talking about what the world might look like in, in 2050. Um, so his grandson would be 30, 31 by then. And it really did just put, the temporal aspect into scope for everyone in that room. Well, Mm. thank you so much, Andrew, and thank you so much to our listeners. If you found this podcast helpful, you might be interested to check our ongoing sovereign series, Worlds in Motion, where we map the post-pandemic landscape for sovereigns globally. You can also check out our COP26 hub. These are all on bakermackenzie.com. My name is Keishi and thanks again for listening. We hope you can join us for the next episode of Finsight.